Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another installment of the Insight into Teaching Introductory Psychology podcast. My name is A.J. LaFerrera. And today we're going to be covering the research methods chapter. Today I am joined by three excellent instructors once again. Let's take a minute to introduce each one of them. Laura, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I'm Laura King. I teach at the University of Missouri, Columbia. And in terms of intro psych, I teach most recently, I've taught a small section of an honors class of intro with about 19 students in it. I've also been known to teach general psychology to about 500 people per semester. Hi, my name is Jason McCoy. I'm an instructor of psychology at Cape Fear Community College in beautiful Wilmington, North Carolina. I've been teaching for about 20 years now. I teach survey uh, courses, mostly introductory psychology. It's a traditional face-to-face with about 30 students. Yes. Hello, everyone. My name is Joseph Butler. I teach with Lone Star College uh, here in Houston. I teach the intro to psychology, as we call it here, the general psychology class. I have relatively small class sizes of 30 students per semester. I've also taught the lifespan growth and development class here that follows intro to psychology. Um, I'm relatively new. I've taught here for about three years. Previously, I taught with University of Phoenix for about the same time, three years, teaching positive psychology. Um, And there we had an older student group that was, uh, of course, nationally located. In the daytime, I'm a program manager with the weekend and evening services team under student success, and that's at Lone Star College as well. Great. Well, thank you all three for joining us. Let's jump right in. So we opened these up by looking at philosophical approaches to teaching the the chapter and the content. What are your goals when you're approaching the research methods chapter? Well, I think this is it. To me, this is the place where it all starts, and this is the foundation for everything else students are going to learn. I feel like the research methods lectures are, for me, the most important ones I do. Because when I first started teaching intro, I actually walked around to my colleagues who were teaching upper-level courses and said, what do you expect students to know coming out of intro as they go into your class? And this is it, thinking like a scientist, understanding the scientific method. So to me, this is super exciting because it really is laying the foundation for everything. But it's also super important, and there's lots of tricky concepts for students. So I think that it is – my goal is to have students walk away understanding – the scientific method, what it means to use science to understand things, why we bothered to collect data to gain knowledge. And it's a very exciting thing. It's something that I also harp on throughout the course of a semester. So we get research methods, but this is the day it starts. I keep talking about it the entire semester. I agree also with Laura. I think this chapter is definitely important for the baseline of education. So one of the goals that I have is an overarching goal of awareness. And I try to tackle this chapter and allow students to understand that they need to be aware of the messages that they're being told. And this chapter really provides the foundation for them to begin to think critically about the messages that we receive every day. So I try to provide a lot of current events for my students 
and I question them and engage them in dialogue. And in this chapter, I really get to question them about the validity, about uh, the, the data that was used to arrive at whatever conclusions that they're drawing from the information that they're taking in. So I think my overarching goal and what I want students to walk away with is not that this is a, a boring chapter, because I think we can make it boring at times, <laughs> but I want them to understand that it's very important to them to understand this and how this applies to everything that they'll really be doing in the future, no matter what career path they choose. So I, mm. I try to approach it from an arching, an overarching goal of awareness. Yeah, I tend to agree with um, everything both Joseph and Laura said. I think research methods is of critical importance, particularly in this fake news era we find ourselves. Too often students come into the classroom with all sorts of notions about uh, well, something's just a theory, so it, it doesn't have any validity necessarily, or, oh, you know, there's two sides to every story, or how do you know what's fake and what's real? And I think starting with a chapter like research methods uh, can be very helpful in disabusing students of these strange notions that they come into the classroom with, uh, notions about the power of anecdotes. Uh, many of my students believe that the plural of an anecdote is evident, and I have to I try to thinking that way. Obviously, it's it's fun to to dig into students' minds about uh, what they think regarding correlations. We as psychologists, particularly, but in general, we as like uh, as scientists believe that correlation does not necessarily equal causation. So it's just a fun time to address, or it's just a fun context within which to address a lot of these beliefs or these myths that students come into the classroom with. And and finally, I'd like to say that. I'm from the school of thought that believes we should be teaching by showing, by doing. I'm not as interested in what students say they know or what students can circle correctly on a test as I am in getting students to demonstrate to me that they understand these principles. Great. Let's talk a little bit more about what you want students to take away from this chapter. Laura, you had mentioned that when you polled some of your colleagues, this was it. So. What's your goal in terms of what students walk away being able to do after you've taught the methods chapter? Well, I guess my my biggest goal is that they will understand why psychology ends in ology, why it is a science, and understand the very basics of experimental design, correlational design, how we come up with hypotheses and what a prediction is and how we test those things. There are some, some of these are tricky, right? Students have trouble understanding the difference between an independent and a dependent variable or between the experimental group and the control group or what, why random assignment is important, why we use random assignment. So often you talk to students about, you know, when they, this idea of tying it in with critical thinking, right, and thinking like a scientist, I think is super important. Students encounter a piece of science, right, and you tell them about a study, right, and the participants were randomly assigned to groups, and here's the result, and then you ask them to critique it, and their first answer is almost always, oh, the groups were probably different to start with. And then you have to back up and remind them that that is never the right answer if we used random assignment, as long as we had a large enough sample, which is going to kind of... Uh, is an issue with uh, replication. But I think that knowing that students have mastered these concepts, that maybe they, in my classes, they've been in studies. Maybe we have run a study as a class. 
so that somehow we get a chance for them to have a, a sense for what psychological science really is. Yeah, my, my approach is similar, I guess. The overarching goal that I have when I teach research methodologies is uh, to get my students to behave like scientists. And so to that end, I have them collect data. I have them participate in mock experiments. Uh, we do a lot of mm -hmm. thought experiments. So yeah, it's again a critical importance and I, I, I want them to be scientists. I want them to get some experience doing science, um, get some experience talking through what it, what it was they were doing and why they were doing it. My approach mimics those approaches as well because we all know science is very important and a lot of our students that come to this class don't understand psychology as a complete science. So I think it builds perfectly off of the previous chapter on the history and talking about philosophical beginnings of psychology. And then that leads into the research and why it's so important to understand the way to carry out ethical, well thought out, well planned research designs. But I guess uh, one of the, the main things that I try to teach my students in doing this and to kind of cement the, the strength and power behind understanding research is the importance of asking well thought out questions. So I want them to question everything. You know, I want them to be able to look at something and say, hey, that sounds like something I agree with. Or better yet, that sounds like something I disagree with. I need to ask more questions. The more I understand both sides of a situation, the data, the way that it was collected, the people who took part in the overarching survey, the research, who did the experiment, who were being observed, Whatever that is, I want them to be able to ask those questions when they leave my class. They can always look up or ask Siri or say, okay, Google to their phone and figure out what specific type of research is being applied. But if they don't ask the question, they won't have the ability to understand what's going on around them. And again, I think that applies to any of the subjects that they'll be taking in college and, and especially in being a smart consumer. And I talk about that a lot and in this chapter as well, because they're constantly being bombarded with toothpaste commercials that say four out of five dentists recommend it. So <laughs> that's, what, that's what I want them to walk away with it, the ability to question things confidently in order to arrive at a better understanding of whatever it is that they're dealing with. Right. I think one of the issues that it really touches all departments across all units of any college or university is having students be science literate. And I think that this is a really great opportunity to introduce students to science so that they'll have these skills no matter what they go into, no matter what other classes they take, that because the topic of psychology is just so intuitively interesting, it's a great context for students to really start to get a good handle on science, what science is. So is it fair to say that all of you teach the research methods chapter within the first couple of weeks of the semester? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do it like my second day. Yes, I do as well. I don't just teach it at one particular moment in the right. semester. I'm teaching research methods or at least facilitating critical thinking about research questions and research methodologies throughout the entire semester. 
Right. I think it's so important to constantly drill with them these very central topics that they learn in the second week of class that they have to remember all the way through, right? Why do we know that this, why can we say that this manipulation caused these changes? Or how do we know that that a, a poll that tells us something about public opinion, even though it only has 300 people in it, how do we, how, why are we saying that it represents a much larger group? So constantly drilling students on those topics, I think, is just super important throughout intro. Yes, I would agree also. And, and it, continues, it continues to pop up throughout specific chapters, but as well as all throughout the book. Like, we all know lifespan growth and development, which is a very long chapter to get through, but research methods comes up there. Again, specific research, mm -hmm. like case studies, longitudinal studies, um, and mental illness, right? Research on the DSM-5, how that came to be. So yeah, personality, we look at assessments, all of those things. So really good point. Yeah, it does come up just about every chapter in my class as well. Yeah, I guess fundamentally for me, uh, AJ, it's just about getting students to understand that science is not a thing. It's not a person, it's not a library, it's not a list of facts. It's a process. It's something that you're working with to try to seek the truth. And you may never find the truth, the truth with a big T, but we're hoping to find an approximation of that truth through systematic studies that hopefully yield good empirical evidence. I wonder if I could ask you guys a question. How much statistics do you cover in your research methods course, like in the research methods lectures? I just talk generally about generating hypotheses and hypothesis testing. So I skirt around um, p-testing a little bit, maybe chi-square. Mm -hmm. But the thing I do most of, I guess, is some descriptive statistics and, uh, and a lot on correlation. Pearson's R, and we actually run some correlations on some data sets because I think that's of critical importance. And it's pretty fun and easy for them, particularly if you're using, say, Excel or Google Sheets in the classroom. It's so interesting to me how I think that many, well, I'm a social and personality psychologist, and I would say that many social psychologists, their first thought about research is always an experiment, and therefore it's always that a two-by-two two and an ANOVA, but I feel like correlational research is so intuitive, and it is true, right? I think many of us can just calculate a correlation coefficient pretty that's so easy, and students can understand what it is, so I always get excited to share with them correlational results, even if we have to constantly remind them that they don't necessarily imply causation. Absolutely, yeah, and it's actually fun demonstrating to them um, that many things are correlated at very high levels but are not necessarily causal, and sort of searching for those in the classroom as a thought experiment can be fun for them. Right. I don't know if you all are familiar with spurious correlations. Yes. There's a fantastic website by this guy, Tyler Vigen, I think his name is, and it has just bizarre and hilarious and completely meaningless spurious correlations. Like the, let's see, the marriage rate in New York and the number of murders in the U.S. using a blunt object. Those two things are correlated, 0.88. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. I've, I've pulled it up in the classroom several times. It's, it's quite yeah. interesting. Hilarious. Yes, my, my go-to is correlation as well for this chapter. I have a couple of videos that walk them through things. Um, I also bring up politics, and killer ice cream is a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always, I always talk about 
the more the grass grows, the more people drown. So that's a fun one. <laughs> no, that's a good one. But yeah, anything that really piques their interest correlation-wise is very easy. Of course, we're going to talk a lot about experiments, but I, I typically steer clear of the statistics. Here at the junior college I teach at, you know, it's, a, it's an open enrollment, and we have some weird <laughs> laws here as far as the platform for education in this state, which was new to me because I'm new to Texas. But yeah, I think piquing their interest with the correlation and then going into some of the ins and outs of running an experimental research, maybe alpha levels, and how that impacts different types of results, and how you know in the replication crisis that may be one of the one of the problems with that as pressure rains on uh, scientists to be published. But I, I try to steer clear of the statistics and focus on the process for the most part. Mm -hmm. But correlation is always a good one to grab their attention. Great. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful introduction to some of your philosophical approaches to the methods chapter. Let's shift a little bit into the practical applications in the classroom. Is there a specific way that you guys open class when you start discussing research methods? Uh, for me, there sure is. I have several different sort of icebreakers that I, I do. And again, I'm, I'm more of a doer. I like to get students moving, get them active, get them uh, participating. And so oftentimes I will ask them all to take out a sheet of paper, ball it up, I'll put the trash can in front of the room, and this has been done many times. This is not my pedagogical trick, but this is certainly something that spoke to me when I first read about this years and years ago. And I, I um, basically asked them to predict who's going to be the most accurate at throwing the, the trash into the trash can. And people will say, well, the people up front will be most accurate. And then I'll say, well, I've always heard that, like, guys can shoot better than females and that Maybe there's something to this stereotype about minorities. Shouldn't the minorities in the classroom do better than, than everyone else? And they start to think and they start to argue a little bit. And I say, well, let's put it to the test. And everyone shoots, of course. And true to form, most of the people in the most of the people who make the basket are sitting close to the basket. And so we start talking about the importance of random assignment and moving people um, and having control groups and making sure that everyone's shooting from the same distance if we're going to keep score. And, yeah, it's kind of fun, and it's a, a nice, gentle way of um, opening up research methods. On my course website, and this is especially with a really large section of intro, on my course website, we will post a link to a, an online experiment. And so students will be randomly assigned. They'll be, they'll be assigned to do it, right, the week before. So then the week we're actually talking about it, we can talk about the study that they all did. And we've done really goofy things, you know, just anything, talking to my graduate students, talking to anybody about what's something weird you've always wanted to know about people. And then we'll throw something up like once we did exposure to cute pictures of puppies and kittens and how does that affect people's mood and, and well-being. And so we randomly assign students to see pictures of furniture or pictures of puppies and kittens, and then they rate their meaning in life or their life satisfaction. And then when we start off talking about research methods, I present the results of the study. And what's really fun about it is that often the predictions that were made are, are not supported. And students get to see this sort of like, well, the last time we did it, this is what happened, and now we're doing it, and this is what's happening. And they get to see the, how easy it is to fall into a post hoc explanation of a failed study, and they get to, they'll start so quickly offering their explanations, their theory of why we found what we found versus something else. 
So I think it's a really fun way to get started is to present some actual data and often presented to them, right, that they help to create. It's especially interesting because they don't, they only know what happened in their uh, particular condition. And so to tell them, oh, un unbeknownst to you, there was this whole other thing, right, going on for half of the people in the class. I think it's a good way to get them sort of engaged and interested in talking about how could you, if you have an idea, some, where do, you, where do these ideas come from, and then how would you develop a study to address some prediction? That's great, both Laura and Jason's approach to uh, engaging the students. And that's definitely something that you have to do is bring research methods to life for the students. And I do that through a lot of discussions, but specifically I, I try to use things that are meaningful to those students, things that they connect with and things that they're very familiar with. So when it comes to research, oftentimes I use uh, marketing, right? Laura uh, mentioned puppies and kittens. I ask them, do they like the Geico gecko or what they think about the Aflac duck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and through research, uh, marketers and a lot of psychologists choose that route because it's so lucrative, um, but marketers have figured out that those animals, those things, when we see those commercials with those babies, it's a self-reflective process. So we imagine ourselves identifying with those small babies, those kittens, those puppies, the duck or the gecko, and then that, that softens the product to them. One thing I say is ba -da -ba -ba -ba, Burger King, and then when I say Burger King, everybody in the class is like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not Burger King, that's McDonald's. And then I'm like, well, Okay, well, what did you think of when you heard that jingle? And McDonald's did the research, and they said when people hear that ba-da-ba-ba-ba, they not only think of McDonald's in the Golden Arches, but they also think about their favorite thing on the McDonald's menu. So when, when I start saying that stuff like that, they're like, oh, well, are they playing a trick on us or what have you? I'm like, well, whether it's a trick or not, if you learn the research, you could at least have a framework to understand what's going on. And again, one of my overarching goals is for these students to learn to ask questions. Um, and as Laura put it, uh, think like a scientist, right? Um, we want to have them beg these questions. And I think it really helps me because they're so familiar with these products and these different aspects of popular culture that it kind of takes the material, because I'm not so much focusing on it, but they embed the meaning of the research that I want them to learn and understand the language to these experiences that they already have. So that's, that's what I try to do the most of through my opening with this chapter. So let's keep going with the examples and stories that you guys use in the classroom. You guys definitely have shared a number of them already. Are there others that you use to either help make the content more relatable or to help explain a specific concept? I like to show a picture of Nest tea, like the powder. <laughs> and then I ask students, like, what is this good for? And everybody's like, oh, I used to have that when I was a kid, or it reminds me of Tang. And then I tell them, like, no, like, if you were going to use this, you could cure a sunburn. And they're like, sunburn? How much do you have to drink to cure a sunburn? <laughs> and then I tell them, no, you, you dump it out in a bathtub and soak in it, and that cures your sunburn. So then, you know, that's, that piques their interest, and then that allows me to, to kind of draw them in. But that's one that I go to, uh, I forget the guy's name, 
Joey Green is his name. So I bring up Joey Green and how he did all this research and made a ton of money. And then everybody's like, oh, well, there's value in this. <laughs> so that's, that's an interesting one, as well as mustard. I tell them if they ever burn themselves trying to grab their frozen pizza out of the oven to put mustard on it. Because the mustard seed in it has been researched to calm the burn of the skin. So just little tips and things like that to, to pique their engagement. Yeah. One of the things that I often do in my class, because I think that it is such an important foundational concept, is to get students to understand how random assignment leads to equal groups and how uh, what it requires in order to do that. And so what I usually do is I bring a small deck of playing cards, like a subset of some, and then a couple of decks together. And then I have a sort of we randomly assign the cards to different groups, and then the groups of students say what their total sum of their cards are. And it, it works every time, right, that if you use a small little subset of cards and you do that, there are pre-existing differences between the groups that random assignments simply can't wash out because it just doesn't have a chance. Versus if you, use, if you start with a large sample, right, and then randomly assign the cards to the groups, they are much more likely to equal out. I think that's one of the most important lessons that students can learn is that if we want to argue that our experimental and control groups are the same from the beginning, not only do participants have to be randomly assigned, but we have to start with a large enough sample that that random assignment has a chance to equal out the groups. Yeah, I agree. That can get you into discussions about the concept of power, which I think is very important. And while exactly. I don't always talk about power necessarily, I do something very similar to what Laura just talked about. Actually, I do several things. Uh, one of them is to just get them to, to start thinking about random assignment and the importance of that in terms of um, balancing out any um, pre-existing differences between any groups. Uh, and to do that, I can do something as simple as cut the room in half, just superficially in half, just sort of pick a point in the classroom and say, everyone to the left of this point, go to one side of the room, and everyone to the right of this, go to the other side of the room. And then I can just simply ask them to count the number of men and women on both sides of the room, to carve themselves into anyone who's above 5'10 versus below 5'10, anyone who's wearing a hat versus not wearing a hat. And what we see is there is sometimes extreme variation between those on the left-hand side and the right-hand side of the room with respect to gender or, or just who's wearing a hat. But if I simply roll the dice or have or, or, you know, just draw numbers and have them separate themselves uh, into these two groups um, more randomly, we notice that height, male, female, uh, whether or not you're wearing a hat tends to randomize or tends to spread out uh, somewhat equally on both sides of the room. Yeah, I have done something like that using the people sitting in the front row versus the people sitting in the back row and having them do a memory test. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible because the people in the back are so – I usually teach at 8 in the morning, right? So the people yeah. in the back are just dragging, and they always do more poorly. And as long as we keep the tone light, it's a really great way for them to see that, yeah, if you haven't randomly assigned people to groups, you're just asking for trouble. Yeah, the people in the back are, are likely necessarily to do, do more poorly. It's similar to what I do with the shooting test with the crinkled piece of paper at the track stand, yeah. Great. Well, there's definitely a lot to unpack about all this, and I think in a short amount of time, you guys have done a great job of kind of walking us through some of your approaches to handling this. I want to leave us with some parting thoughts from each of you. So do one of you want to kick us off? Yeah, I guess I can. I'll just simply say that 
I, I love teaching psychology, specifically introductory psychology, because um, precisely because it's uh, so fun that students come in with little to no appreciation of the science of psychology. Like, what does it mean to say that psychology or anything else is a science? They have their own ideas, uh, sometimes very far from, from reality. And that's really, really fun. And at the same time, that can be extraordinarily daunting and challenging. And I think that uh, probably gets into the competitive spirit that I've always had is, okay, well, let me sort of facilitate this discussion or facilitate your understanding of what, we're, what we mean when we say correlation does not equal causation or what we mean when we say empirical evidence versus just, you know, anecdotal evidence. Um, so I, I love doing this, and uh, I think that we're just fortunate to live in a time where textbooks do as good a job as they do. We have very thoughtful and very cautious and skeptical um, teachers slash authors that are putting good textbooks on the market. I know Laura King's textbook is a pretty good one. I don't mean to plug it necessarily, but, but I know it's a very good book. And, I know, and, and the last thing I'll say is I also know uh, that McGraw-Hill is a pretty good company. I, I like the kinds of things that you guys do in terms of the development of your textbooks, of your media, of um, the, the, the students that are going to be using these. You, do, you guys do a great job with this. This podcast is an awesome opportunity for anyone involved and, and those that uh, are going to be able to benefit from listening to it. So I, I think it's an awesome time to, to be a college professor, particularly in psychology. And I think it's an even more awesome time to be a student because we have all these tools and all this passion floating around. And this collaboration, like I've never seen it in my 20 years of teaching higher education between publishers and professors. So it's really awesome what you guys do. Very well said, Jason. And I also was, was really pleased at this opportunity and with a topic that is definitely very relevant and interesting it's funny because when I was talking to my colleagues about doing the podcast, you can just kind of see their eyes kind of gloss over a little bit. And then I get to telling them what, what we're talking about, what I plan on talking about. And I'm a very lighthearted person. So they get that I, I'm always laughing. I'm all, something's always funny in, in the subject matter. But as it, like on a more serious note, I think this chapter is fun. We do get to talk about a lot of things and open students' eyes, especially these young students from such a diverse background and intro to psychology, because these aren't necessarily going to be social sciences. But what I really like to leave my students with as far as parting thoughts is, number one, is becoming an informed consumer. And that means asking appropriate questions, um, whether it be about a product that you buy or about some current events, right? I love politics. Um, I follow everything. I read a lot about politics. So I get to play with that, the linguistics of what politicians say or certain initiatives that are on the ballot and what that could mean to affect certain populations. And then we dive into the research, right, the different layers of research and what we can do to impact change. And then, of course, that also leads to diversity, which is a huge thing in, in research. We alluded to it by um, controlling sample sizes and random sampling. But when I tell students, um, and I'm very fortunate because I work on a very diverse campus, and ever since I've come to this campus, in my class, I tell students to look at each other. I say, look around. And it's a small class. It's capped at 32 students. But with that group, every class, 
the students they don't know what to say. They don't know how to break up that class. If they were going to if they were going to separate the class into groups, there's no way to do it. So it's extremely diverse. And then we're used to looking at diversity from an ethnic standpoint. And so I say no. Um, you know, first of all, we're all college students. You know, that puts you all in a group. We all live in this area, which is a very affluent school district. You know, your parents have similar jobs. And then we talk about the importance of diversity, of course, as it relates to research. But as Jason and Laura pointed out, this is a subject that keeps coming up all throughout the Intro to Psychology textbook. So I just think it's really powerful. And this is the, the chapter that I use early on to launch into um, critical thinking and specifically meta-analysis as it impacts students and try to give them that ability as they embark upon the rest of their uh, academic career. Right. I agree. It is such a, it's such an important foundational set of knowledge. I think, you know, when I was in graduate school, I TA'd for an instructor who started out the research methods section by saying, some of you will find this easy to learn, and some of you will never understand it. And I thought, oh, my God, that's such a horrible thing to say. <laughs> I tell my students when we start research methods, this, is, this might be difficult for some people, right? For some people, it won't be. For some, it will be very difficult. But everybody's going to master these concepts. We are all going to figure this out together. There won't be anybody left behind. We're all going to know, you know, what the experimental method is, what correlational studies are that these things are, can be learned, they are masterable, and I think if I were a new professor starting out, I would say this is what some of the most fun, exciting material. It seems dry and maybe scary, but if you think about it, it's one place where we, we actually have expertise. We, silly little psychologists, actually know something. We have serious, important knowledge to share with the students and expertise in something that we can share with them, they can take it with them wherever they, wherever they go in life. So I feel like this is our, uh, one of the, the most fun things to teach because it's so valuable. And when you're imparting that knowledge and finding out how students are doing, I think this is a great place to have lots of quizzes and in-class activities so you get some feedback about how they're doing. It doesn't have to be learned in that week. I always tell my students, you don't have to learn it this week when we're covering it. But by the end of the semester, you are going to know about research methods because it keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And it continues to be this super fun, fascinating topic, no matter what the specific area of psychology is that we're covering. And I would say to, like, new instructors to, hey, pick your favorite studies. Share them with the students. This is this place where you can, you can decide what the content is. You, we have the structure here. We know what the topics are in terms of experimental design and correlational design and, and confounds and confederates and all these important concepts students need to learn. But you can enliven those concepts with whatever your favorite studies are or your favorite questions or your favorite topics out there in the world. So I think it's an awesome opportunity to get students on board with the scientific method. Great. Well, Joseph, Jason, Laura, I want to thank you guys for joining us. To everybody that's listening, thank you for once again joining us on this podcast. And with that, we'll talk to you guys again shortly. Thanks, everybody. Thank Sounds you. good. Thanks, AJ. Thank you all. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.